Good morning and happy Mother's Day. It is uh, so fitting to have Josh and Paula publicly dedicate themselves to the raising of Celine and the fear and admonition of the Lord in this day. A mother is responsible for at least 50% of that upbringing, so we've got 50% of it here today anyways on Mother's Day, but every day is Mother's Day, I think. Indeed, the concept behind Mother's Day is, is biblical and is consistent with the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. To honor is to regard or treat someone with admiration and respect. And I was preparing the message for this day, I thought a lot about my own mother and the biblical attributes that she displayed in her life. One of them was humility. Consistently seeking the good of others above her own needs, above her own desires, and indeed above her own good. She sacrificed much in the raising of seven children, and she has suffered much as well. But in her typical British fashion, she would say, God has been good to me. And mean it. It was a lifetime of humility as I reflected that allowed her to grieve and lament my father's death last fall. In the days and weeks after his passing, she would say, me and God have a talk every night and we get things sorted out. Then she would lay down to sleep, knowing that it was all in God's hands. It is this type of humility that Christ modeled for us and that brings glory to God the Father as we will see in our passage today. I am so thankful for this vivid model of humility in my upbringing. Shall we pray? Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather together around your word. I pray for clarity of thought and of speech as I present what I've prepared. May your spirit work in a mighty way among us here today. May we submit to the truth of your word. I pray that you would keep me from error. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage today is about humility, and it is a continuation in my very long and drawn-out series on the book of Philippians. I had to look it up, but I preached the first sermon from the book of Philippians here on April 24th, 2016, from chapter 4, verse 4 to 7, uh, not knowing that I would preach through the book. So considering this expansive time, it may be appropriate to review a little bit. I did start at the end, and then, then I went to the beginning and started over again. So we're, we're in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 today. But before we read that, let's review a little bit about the book of Philippians. 
Now, the book of Philippians in the New Testament is a letter written by Paul from prison in Rome in approximately A.D. 61 to his friends and fellow believers at the church that he founded in Philippi about 12 years earlier as recorded in Acts 16. Now, Philippi was an influential city in the region of Macedonia, was a Roman colony. And if we were to take the time to read Acts 16, we would learn of the conversion of Lydia, the exorcism of the slave girl, Paul and Silas being thrown into jail. We would learn of Paul and Silas being filled with joy in their imprisonment and singing hymns and praying in the middle of the night and an earthquake causing the doors to open and Paul and Silas chose not to escape. The jailer was converted that night, was baptized. Paul and Silas were released and ordered to leave the city. The church had blossomed from this initial visit and had specifically supported Paul in his gospel work when no other church did, according to Philippians 4.15. Now Paul is in another prison, writing to his dear friends to encourage them and to live a life with joy in spite of their sufferings. We are not told directly of the cause of their suffering, but Paul refers to a conflict in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, as he exhorts them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Those verses say this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul encourages them to stand firm, united in one spirit, striving for the gospel in the face of this opposition. He told them in chapter 1 that he will rejoice in his imprisonment because Christ is being proclaimed to the imperial guard and beyond. He expresses a firm expectation and hope that he will be delivered. Then clarifies that that might mean deliverance from prison or deliverance from life to be with Christ. The believers are told that not only have they been granted faith, but they have been granted suffering for the sake of Christ. Now chapter 2 begins with what's technically called an inferential conjunction, so which ties two thoughts together, and in this case means in light of, or as a consequence of, what has just been said, and it could be translated also, therefore. The next word is if, which technically is a first-class condition, meaning that the condition is true already. So verse 1 could be translated, therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort in love, participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is saying that in light of the fact that they are to live a life worthy of the gospel in the face of trial and suffering, and that there is encouragement in Christ, comfort in love, participation in the Spirit, they are to complete his joy by living a life of unity through humility to each other. Most clear are the imperatives or the commands in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The Christian life is to be a life of humility, and humility is to be characterized by service to others. Christ is glorified when we seek the interests of others before we seek our own interests. So that brings us to our passage under study today, which is chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. So let's read from the start of the chapter to get the full context there again. So from, from verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a remarkable passage. Let's examine the structure of this passage is it's, it's a bit complex and it's loaded with theological detail. And when I'm looking at this passage, I, I look for the verb, specifically the imperative. What is Paul's audience being told to do? And this is a huge help in this passage. And the verb here is basically, in the Greek, the word is translated have mind, but we could extend it to have this mind. So at the start of five, have this mind. And this is, this is the phrase that drives the whole passage. Technically, this is a present active imperative in the second person plural sense. 
All the English majors out there will enjoy that. A verb, of course, is, indicates an activity. And the present and active tense means that the action is to be in process and ongoing. An imperative is a command. And second person, person plural means all of you, or in Texas, y'all. So this command is addressed to all of the listeners and is to be an active and ongoing activity. It's not just something they do once. So, what does this mean then? What does this command mean? Have this mind. Have this mind could be defined as formulating or holding an opinion. Or, better yet, more specifically, an intentional sense of setting one's mind on something. An intentional sense of setting one's mind on something. To know what you need to do and to keep focused on doing it. And verse 5 is in this passage is transitional in nature. Paul summarizes the preceding exposition with an imperative. He launches forward. He's just told the church to live a life of humility and service to others. And then he launches into a Christological narrative which displays the ultimate model of humility. It is this mind that his readers are commanded to have. He is telling them to have the mind of Christ who did all these things out of love and service in a spirit of humility. Verse 5 looks back at verse 4, which says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he pushes even further to command them to have this mind of humility in their Christian life, as displayed to the ultimate and perfect degree by Christ himself. Paul points them to Christ in his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, and his glorification, all of which glorifies God the Father. So the idea, the argument here that Paul is presenting is that the Philippians and glorify God the Father in their everyday lives by living a life of humility and service to each other just as Christ glorified God the Father in his life, death, and resurrection. It is this mind and this opinion, this attitude that Paul commands them to have. And this is the key idea that we must keep in mind throughout the rest of this passage. As there's a lot of detail that follows in very short order here. We need to remember the command as we read the rest of the verses. Have this mind among yourselves. The mind or attitude of humility. Not only to just own the mindset, but to intentionally set our minds and our beings to it in an active and ongoing manner. Not only ourselves, but the church as a whole. This is to characterize the whole church. So verse, verses 6 to 11 move very quickly and cover an immense amount of truth. It would be very easy to spend hours discussing what is declared here in depth. And books upon books have been written on these topics. 
But all I want to do this morning is to provide a, an overview which will help understand what it says and why it's there. How does it relate to this imperative? So, let's wade in. Keeping in mind the command to have this mind among ourselves, the mind or attitude of Christ, whose life displayed the ultimate model of humility. So there are some difficult phrases to work through here. The wording is sometimes a bit difficult. The first in verse 6 is that Jesus was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what is the form of God? One of the commentators that I relied upon extensively stated it quite succinctly. And he said, The expression does not refer simply to external appearance, but pictures the pre-existent Christ as clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. He was in the form of God, sharing God's glory. The form of God thus corresponds to John 17, 5, where he says, The glory I had with you before the world began, and reminds us of Hebrews 1, 3, which says, The radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So the form of God could be thought of as the glory of God, the sharing of God's glory. So what does it mean when Paul says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? The main idea here is that although Jesus shared God's glory, he did not hang on to it for his own purposes. It was not something to be exploited. In keeping with this idea, the verse continues to say that he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant. Other versions say that Jesus emptied himself, which I think is less clear, and it's more prone to lead the reader to a wrongful assumption that Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes. In an act of willful obedience, he temporarily gave up sharing God's glory by becoming a man, by coming to earth in the form of a servant. He made himself nothing. He poured himself out. He gave himself. In keeping with the full teaching of Scripture, it is important to understand that Jesus, in coming to earth as a man, did not give up any divine attributes, but he took on a new attribute, the form of a man, a human nature, which would be in place permanently. Scripture teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time in one person. And some of the creeds that Pastor Josh has led us through recently have specifically addressed this. Verse 8 then speaks of the ultimate work of Jesus on earth. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now remember that this passage is about humility and the command to have this mind among yourselves, the command to look to the interests of others and to do nothing 
from rivalry or conceit. It is fitting then that the passage does not speak of the entirety of Christ's life, the purpose of his death on the cross to obtain salvation, or even specifically about salvation. This is all encapsulated in one word, obedient. The obedience of Christ in his incarnation, in his sinless life, his humiliating death, is what has accomplished salvation for all who believe. The passage moves so quickly that we can miss the point. The passage is that Jesus, that God himself, humbled himself willingly and obediently to come to earth and obtain salvation for his people. He is God. He did not have to do this. Why did he do this? I believe John 3.16 helps us out there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was the love of the Father and the love of the Son in obedience to the Father's desires that initiated and accomplished salvation. Jesus, God himself, fully God, humbled himself, gave up his position of glory to come to earth to save a sinner such as I. The next verse, verse 9, begins with therefore. So we know that what follows is dependent on what has just been stated. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This verse proves that the favor of the Father was upon the Son, and that the Son was acting in willful obedience to the Father. And as a result of that obedience, to the point of a humiliating death on the cross, the Father has exalted the Son. Not just exalted, but highly exalted. Given exceptional honor the highest level of honor, in fact. Because the name that is bestowed on him is above every other name. It is this level of honor that, at the consummation of all things, every human will bow and confess. What will they confess? All people will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus, the anointed one, the Savior, the Christ, is Lord, is God, is ruler over all. Why? To the glory of God the Father. All people bowing in subjection to Jesus brings glory to God the Father because God the Father has exalted the Son and placed him in that position. There's so much in these verses. What is the name that is bestowed upon Jesus as at his exaltation? There's much debate about this, but I believe that the flow of the text indicates that the name is Lord, Master, Yahweh, God himself. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow 
to Jesus as Lord. This has not happened yet. This is a future event. A time in the future when Christ will return to gather His elect and to judge the living and the dead. There will be two categories of people, and only two. Those who have confessed Christ in this life, and those who have not. There will be two attitudes. One of joy at the return of the Savior, and one that will involve a complete lack of joy. The text is clear. The Bible as a whole is clear. That every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So this concludes our quick overview and interpretation of the passage. It is important to summarize what he's, Paul is saying to his original audience. What is his main point? What is he trying to convince them of? How does this fit into the context of the whole letter? Paul's main argument here is that he was trying to convey to the Christians in Philippi that they were to live a lives worthy, live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. One of the primary aspects of that would be that their lives would be marked by a standard of humility. They were to be united in the gospel and they were to serve each other in Christ. And then Paul points to Christ as the ultimate model of that humility. He says to set your minds intentionally on having the humility of Christ. Intentionally seek the highest level of humility and service to others the level achieved by Christ, who gave up His glory to willingly become a servant in the form of a man in obedience to God the Father and to the glory of God the Father. In doing this, Jesus achieved exaltation and the highest possible honor by the Father as a result of the Father's approval and pleasure. So how does this passage relate to the Gospel? Why is it important? I believe there are two answers to, two aspects to the answer to this question. The first is that this passage highlights the humility and obedience of Christ in the gospel narrative. Without explicitly stating the gospel in this passage, that Christ's death was substitutionary on our behalf, we know that without the humiliation and obedience of Christ, our ransom could not have been purchased. Without Christ's obedience unto death, there is no gospel, and there is no salvation. Romans five eighteen to 19 says, Therefore, one, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's obedience the many were made disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The second aspect, I think, is that without the gospel, then we cannot exercise this level of humility. So there are two parts to that as well. The first involves a supernatural change in our nature. 
something that God himself does when we are saved. It's called the new creation or the new heart. And only God can do this. And it is a gift and it's an essential feature of the new covenant. The second is that we aren't humble unless we practice humility. We need to live in obedience to the commands of Christ. As we have heard from this pulpit before, the glory of the new covenant is that God, only God provides what only God requires or commands of us. We have to remember that the main point here in this passage is a command to have this mind among ourselves. We are to do this. So that must entail an exercise of the will, but it then follows with, with the phrase, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We have to be in Christ to be able to obey Christ. So what does this passage mean for us today? How are we going to apply this? What do I want you to remember from this passage today? Now, I'd entitled this passage, Have This Mind Among Yourselves. And this is what we need to remember. The passage contains a glorious and inspiring Christological hymn, and it is easy to think that that's the point of this passage, but in context, it is simply modifying the imperative, the command to be humble. It is showing us the ultimate example of humility. How could there be a greater example? From the highest high to the lowest low, all done voluntarily, in obedience to the Father, and to achieve salvation of a people most loved. Initially, I'd stated the phrase, have this mind, meant to intentionally set your mind on something, to intentionally set your opinion, to have a firm goal and work towards it. I have three points that I think, that I hope will be helpful. Three questions that I asked. What are we to set our minds to in addition to humility? What are we to not set our minds to? And how do we set our minds on something? How do we do it? And the first two questions are going to get answered kind of together because Scripture answers them together. What does Scripture tell us to set our minds to and not set our minds to in our daily Christian walk? In Romans 8, that we've read today, is one of the most helpful passages in this regard. It helps us to know what we are to set our minds to and what we are not to not set our minds to. So if we'll turn to Romans 8, verses 1 to 11. There is, our, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk 
not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although this body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We are to set our minds on the things of the spirit and to not set our minds on the things of the flesh. What does this mean? What are the things of the spirit and what are the things of the flesh? There are two passages, further passages, which help understand this. We have to go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I would conclude from this passage that the things of the Spirit are, in fact, the fruit of the Spirit, and the things of the flesh are the desires of the flesh. Colossians 3, verse, verses 1 to 17, are also instructive in this regard. It provides a detailed list of what to set our minds on and what to not set our minds on. The passage specifically calls us to set our minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. 
then tells us how to do that in practical terms of putting to death the things of the earth and putting on the spirit, the things of the spirit. So let's read this passage. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seating at the right hand of God, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, you, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thank, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The terminology is the same, to set your mind. This is an act of the will and obedience to the commands of Christ and is achievable by and only by the power of the Holy Spirit through the new birth. Our passage in Philippians speaks primarily of humility as something to set our minds on. But I think we must incorporate that into the entirety of what Scripture commands us to set our minds upon. Because all of the things that are because all of these things are the things that are above, the things of the Spirit. And we cannot choose to focus on one thing. They are all related, and there is unity in them. So that's why I read all of that scripture to get an idea of the grasp of the unity of the things that we are to set our minds upon, not just humility. And indeed, they're indivisible. Can you be humble without being compassionate? Can you be kind without being patient? Can you be loving without being forgiving? So how do we do it? How do we have this mind of humility? How do we set our minds on the things of, God, of the Spirit? Well, as I alluded to earlier, we 
can't do this on our own. Romans 12.2 tells us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. The, the renewal of your mind comes from God in the new covenant when we confess Jesus as Lord. And Pastor Josh has spoken recently from Hebrews 8 in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The renewal of the mind is a supernatural event. It comes from God. And it must happen before we can set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Recall Romans 8 verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The unregenerate mind is hostile to God and cannot please God in obedience or attempts at obedience. Also recall Hebrews 11.6 that Pastor Josh has spoken on. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We cannot please God without faith, and we cannot obey God's law without faith. There are only two types of people in this world. Those with minds set on the flesh, and those with minds set on the spirit. Once we have been saved by the grace of God, and our minds are renewed by his indwelling spirit, then it is possible to obey God and to set our minds on the things of the spirit. We have seen already in multiple passages that this is a command. It requires our willful obedience. It requires intention. We are responsible for it. Colossians 3 tells us to put to death the sinful actions in our life. Just as we need to intentionally obey, we need to intentionally seek out and destroy sinful attitudes actions and thoughts and behaviors in our lives. There are two sides to sanctification, the growing into a likeness of Christ. There's a putting off of sin and there's a putting on of holiness. This is to be a present and ongoing activity in the life of a Christian. Galatians 5.16 tells us to Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I believe this is where it boils down. To walk by the Spirit means to live a life in communion with the Spirit on a present, active, ongoing basis. This means we must spend time in the Word, time in prayer, time in fellowship with others, and time in quiet meditation. We must live in obedience to the work and activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We must know the truth. We must know what to aspire to and what to fix our minds upon. I have some hard questions. What are you fixing your mind upon today 
What did you fix it upon yesterday? What will you fix it upon tomorrow morning? What captures your unwavering attention? Are your goals in life focused on the things of the world or the things of the Spirit? They are incompatible. It's one or the other. Do we have this mind of Christ, this mind, this attitude of utmost humility in our homes, in our workplaces, in our vehicles, when we're on the internet? Is it most important to us that we seek the good of others? Or are we primarily seeking our own good? If we were in a position of highest honor and privilege, would we voluntarily give that up to serve others? Would we consider the position that we have in life right now as something to be grasped? Something to hang on to for our own benefit. Would we make ourselves nothing? To pour out our lives in service and love for others? This is the mind of Christ. Before I finish, I want to point out the reason to point ahead to the reason for all this and the hope we have in Christ. The verse 11 states the reason. It's the same reason that Christ obeyed. The reason is for the glory of God the Father. All we say and all that we do should be to the glory of God. For He has created us. He has saved us. He has given us the faith to trust in Him. We have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of a glorified body. The hope of eternal life of joy with Him if we have placed our trust in Him. If we have confessed the name of Jesus in this life and live in obedience, we can have this hope. I'll call the worship team up as we prepare to close. As we spend some time in meditation. Our text today has stated that all will bow the knee. All will confess Christ. There may be someone here today or someone listening who has not done this. And when Christ returns, this will not be a joyful event. The Bible is clear. An eternity of punishment and pain and sorrow awaits. An eternity in hell. An eternity on bended knee confessing that Christ is Lord with no hope of salvation. If that's you today, I urge you 
to bend the knee, to confess your sins before Jesus, and to declare that Christ is Lord.